All right, you gluttons for punishment. Um, uh, if you look on the back of the packet that you hopefully got when you came in today, uh, the bibliography back there, I, I want to just, uh, let me say a couple things real quick before we get started. Some of the things that, that we obviously are going through uh, are a good bit difficult. They're challenging to understand, to wrap your head around. And as I've visited with a number of you uh, in the past few weeks, there are things, things that a, a lot of times you don't just hear taught you know, relatively pain, plainly or talked about relatively plainly. And the main reason um, for that a lot of times is because in a, in a lot of places, those kinds of subject, that kind of subject matter will just drive the wedge right down the middle of the church. And uh, so that in the book of Revelation, I think I saw a, a poll one time that was, and I don't know how true it is, it kind of goes around ministry circles, but the poll was something to the effect of the book that the average person in the pew most wants to hear preached or taught is Revelation, and the book the pastor least wants to preach and teach is Revelation. And, uh, and so you end up with these kinds of taboo topics that are sometimes difficult to talk about and difficult to, to discuss. Um, and so I, I think for a lot of people, maybe even people in here, it's the first time you hear a lot of this taught and, uh, or, or just spoken about plainly. And so what happens as a result of that is obviously you get questions at the end of, you know, all of this that may get addressed or may not get addressed. And, and so um, it, it's wise to begin consulting, you know, resources that can help you kind of deepen an understanding of that. And, and I think this one at the top here by Matthew Barrett, Salvation by Grace, The Case for Effectual Calling and Regeneration, is fantastic. I would recommend that to you. It, he, he goes, for the most part, he goes from everything from soup to nuts. I mean, from the very beginning all the way to the very end and just walks through it very plainly, um, deals with both sides, deals with the arguments against, and kind of addresses each of those arguments um, against. Uh, it is, is really good. Everybody on this list is going to be good. Some of them are more accessible than others. Uh, I think Matthew Barrett is is pretty accessible and yet deals with everything. Um, another one that is really good is this Piper book uh, about three quarters of the way down called Finally Alive, which deals with rebirth, what, ha what happens when you're born again, and what, what, is it, what does that mean? Um, he goes through all of the, really, the scripture passages, and he deals with it in a very uh, good way, and if you've ever read a Piper book, some people find them very easy to read, and some people find them very difficult to read. The more you read that, the more the easier it is to read. So it, it's probably a little less accessible, but it, it's um, it's still very good. And this last book on the list by Tom Schreiner, um, Paul, Apostle of God's Glory in Christ, Appalling Theology, is, is good. It deals with a lot more than just the topics that we're talking about. It deals with a lot more than that on all of Paul, but it has some good things to say, particularly in regards to some of the topics that we're covering. So uh, all of these are good. I'd recommend any of them to you, but some of them may be a little bit more accessible than others. Uh, I just want to draw your attention to that. Now, uh, if we're going to, as a, just a matter of tracing our steps, and remember, all we're trying to do is just inch forward a little bit at a time. If we're tra retracing our steps, we remember that at the very beginning, we're, we're dealing the first two weeks with just sin. And what is sin? Why are we condemned as guilty um, before the Lord? And the reason why we're condemned is, one, because Adam sinned, and in Adam all die. So once Adam sinned, that rendered the whole human race guilty. And then as a result, because we are guilty, and because we are just born in Adam, we also then sin. So you, we're condemned to die before we're ever born. I mean, from the moment of conception. Um, and that, that is essentially the Bible's way of explaining death as a whole. God gives death as a result of sin, and, and Paul makes the argument, and everyone died, didn't they? Yes, they did. So that means that we're all guilty in that sense. But then we also commit sin, so we're, we're right there with Adam. We're, he, he's not uh, innocent, obviously, and we're no more innocent um, because we weren't there than, than, he, than anybody else. So we, we commit sins. We sin because we're sinners. 
Um, and so we, we also dealt with Jesus and the, the work that he did on the cross. So we understand that salvation, when we talk about being saved, that it is right to say that that, that is a past tense event that we were saved by Jesus on the cross before we had ever been born. Uh, Jesus died 2,000 years ago, and on the cross, took the wrath of God that He had stored up for His children. So there's no hell for His children because His wrath has been uh, poured out on Christ on the cross before I was ever born. So it's right to say that salvation is first and foremost a past tense event that began with God, and happened there on the cross of Calvary with Jesus Christ. And he fits the bill to do that because he is both man, fully man, and fully God. Being fully man, he actually did the things that man was charged to do. You have dominion over the earth, uh, subdue it. And Christ did that with the good news of the gospel. He came in and lived righteously and did that. But then, uh, as God, he was fit to be able to do it. All of us were condemned in Adam, and he was not. So, and, and, and obviously, um, being fully endowed with the Spirit of God, he is able uh, to accomplish what we are not able to accomplish. And so, as such, he is a covenant head for us. Just as we are all guilty in Adam, so we are now righteous in Christ as long as our hearts are reborn by God's Spirit. So, what that, then what we talked about last week was that New birth, that being born of the Spirit, is not something we do, but something God does. It is monergistic, uh, meaning that God works alone. Mono, meaning uh, alone, and um, ergo, meaning God, meaning works. So we're saying God works alone. Um, and what that also then means is that man is the passive recipient of salvation, that God does the regeneration, and he needs no help in that. He, he changes the heart of man for a new heart. And once the new heart is given, then we have been given the ability to respond. And it's only until that heart is changed that God does the work um, that we can ever actually please God. And so we're going to deal a little bit more with that. As I said, like kind of each week is more like taking the end of last week and zooming in further on it and kind of expanding that out a little bit. And so we're going to be, uh, well, if the rest of the weeks didn't make you mad, maybe this one will, uh, is, is basically what I'm saying here. So uh, I don't think so. I hope that's not the case. But um, so we're going to start here. Let's just start with the first passage here. And you notice we have quite a bit of, of Scripture to work through tonight. So um, the Bible demands uh, two seemingly paradoxical principles held by the Christians simultaneously. The first, stemming from matters already discussed, says that the atonement, the, uh, the atonement that Christ paid on the cross is applied effectually by God's sovereign choice to His elect. Um, that's the one side of it, all right? That, what, to his elect, elect, E-L-E-C-T. Um, so th this is, I think, for the most part, for many people, this is the difficult thing to wrap your head around. We have so many scriptures sitting in front of us, and sometimes we read one thing and we're like, okay, I'm tracking with you, and then we read somewhere else and we see something that seems to be a paradox, that how can both of these things be true at once? And tonight we're going to uncover that, and I think, uh, and just talk about it openly, and I think it's incumbent on us to refrain from asking why first. That's the question we want to get to, that's the question we want to know, but you have to understand this, you're not always told the reason why, okay? Just plainly, you're not always told the reason why. And sometimes you have to accept what is, and that's the better question. It's not, why would God do it that way? The question is, did he do it that way? Is that what the Bible is telling you he did? If that's what the Bible is telling you he did, then it's our job to say, okay, we may get more clarity later on as to why he did it that way. Sometimes the Bible will tell us those things, and sometimes it won't. But it's not a good question to ask first, before I accept this, why did he do it that way? No, no, bad question. Let's stop and say, did he do it that way? Is that what the scriptures are telling us he did? 
And if it's true that they're telling us he did it that way, then we accept it. Now we, be, we may be able to ask the question why and uncover answers to that question, but it's not a good first question. What we have to know is the first side of this seemingly, seemingly paradoxical thing that we believe, one side says, well, Christ paid for the cross, paid for our sin, atoned for our sin on the cross, and that atonement is then applied effectually to a group of people. Called, referred to as the elect throughout Scripture. So we'll see uh, more of this throughout, but uh, I want to read just a few of these. So um, let's look at, well, let's just start at the top. John 10, 14 to 18. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. And they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I laid down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. So he says it pretty plainly, and then he, he goes on to say it even more plainly. But you do not believe, because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice. And I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. So he, he's talking very specifically about a group of people that he lays down his life for. We see this actually come to fruition a little bit later on as Luke describes Gentiles coming to believe. Paul is sharing the gospel and it says in Acts 13, 48, And when the, gospel, when, the, when, the gospel, when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Well, there it is, right? There, there's a, after they were appointed to eternal life by the Lord, they believed. And, and that's essentially backing up what Jesus has just said. My sheep hear my voice. They know me, and, and I know them, and they follow me. And here we go, a bunch of Gentiles believing. Ephesians 1.4 might be the most clear of all. Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us, to adoption, uh, predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, and to the praise of His glorious grace, which He has blessed us in the Beloved. And then one eleven, In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things, according to the counsel of His will. 2 Thessalonians 2.13 But we ought, to all, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. So sanctification... Belief, all of those things came after his choosing. Romans 1, 6-7, including you who were called to belong to Jesus Christ, all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 8, 28-30 might be even the most clear. And, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. Where's what I do in there, Paul? Well, He doesn't leave room for you at all. He just says you were the one that received it. That's all. Well, what about Romans 9, 10 to 18? This one might be the toughest pill to swallow of all. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived, remember this is the Old Testament, Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our father Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, 
but on God who has mercy. For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, for this uh, reason, for this very purpose, I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Those are tough pills to swallow, aren't they? Um, I mean, we could go on. They're all listed here. You, you see them. Um, so there, there, it's clear that there is a, a group referred to commonly by the elect, those predestined, for whom the atonement of Christ was applied. Jesus says as much in John. Um, the rest of the New Testament writers say as much. The atonement was applied to these. But there's another side to this that we have to hold in tension, and we have to say, well, that's also true because scriptures also say that. Um, and this is going to cause us to ask why I know. Um, the second is that the preaching of the gospel to all people comes out of a real, genuine desire to see all people repent and be saved. And that's God's real desire. To see all people repent and be saved. The gospel call is a bona fide, well-meant offer. Well-meant is a hyphenated word. Well and then M-E-A-N-T. Well-meant offer. That is seriously given. God actually puts this out as a general call to humanity to be saved. All right? Look at Psalm... Let me get to the page here. Psalm um, 81, 13 to 16. Oh, that my people would listen to me, that Israel would walk in my ways. I would soon subdue their enemies and turn my hand against their foes. Those who hate the Lord would cringe toward him, and their fate would last forever. But he would, he would, fe- but he would feed you with the finest of wheat and with honey from the rock. I would satisfy you. Proverbs 124, Because I have called and you refuse to listen, I have stretched out my hand and no one has heeded. Isaiah 1, 18-20, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Ezekiel 18.23. Here here are some of the the most uh, convincing, maybe. Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live? 18.32. This is just a few verses later. For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God. So turn and live. Ezekiel 33, verse 11. Say to them, As I live, declares the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked would turn from his way and live, turn back, turn back from your evil ways. For why will you die, O house of Israel? Uh, um, What about Matthew 23, 37? This is a New Testament thing too. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. Um, uh, well it's also it's not just Jesus and it's not just God that says that it's the church that follows after Jesus they also proclaim this 2 Corinthians 5.20 therefore we are ambassadors for Christ God making his appeal through us we implore you on behalf of Christ be reconciled to God Uh, oh here's a great one 1 Timothy 2 3-4 this is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior that is to pray for all people is what he's saying um, who desires all people to be saved and come to a saving knowledge of the truth. So the point is, there's this crazy seeming juxtaposition in Scripture. It, it's it's a, a paradox that, that sits before us. How do we reconcile those things? Uh, th- those are, both of them are true. I'm not standing up here rejecting any of those texts of Scripture, happily accepting all of those texts. But what, and what it means, too, is that as a, as a preacher of the gospel, as members of a Christian congregation, our responsibility is to offer the gospel broadly, right? 
This next one. The gospel is to be preached to all without hesitation or reservation. Without hesitation or reservation. We do not know who will believe and who will not. We do not know who the elect are. We are to preach the gospel to all, desiring to see all come to repentance and faith. That is the content of these verses that are listed here. I won't read them all because I think we're probably all in agreement on that. Um, but that is what is incumbent on us. If God were to ever tell us, here's my list. Here's the Lamb's book of life. All right, here it is. Well, we could just go find those people and just preach the gospel to them until we're blue in the face and eventually they would come to believe. All right, We're not told any of that. And so we, in the meantime, deal with this juxtaposition. Here is... Here is God, who says, I desire all men to be saved, all men to come to a saving knowledge of the truth. And yet, decreed it not be so. He knows what it takes. Well, God, you have to change their heart. You have to open their eyes. I can't do that. I can just preach. You have to do that. And he says, I wish that were so. That's what he tells us in the Bible. But then he also says, I've decreed it not be so. Okay. Those are hard realities. And, they're, they're t- and everyone would seek to, every side would seek to dissolve those tensions. And would seek to say, well, let's take that one away. And let's just live in this one over here. Let, let's live in the, God wants all men to be saved. And let's ignore the first the Ephesians. Let's try to explain that a different way. And let's, you know... Those who are pointed to eternal life believe. Let's ignore that part of it because uh, uh, those are uncomfortable for this over here. And then you got the other side too. Is uh, well, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. So that over there in Timothy, I don't know what that means, but it's got to mean something else. No, no, they're both true. There's a desire in God for this to happen. There is there's a desire for no person to sin, no one to sin. Is it God's desire for you to commit murder? Absolutely not. And yet, he decreed that men would gather together and murder his own son. He decreed that it would happen that way. Who it was, when it was, and Peter tells us when he's preaching, they did whatever your hand decreed to take place, predestined to take place. So we have to live in that reality where there are things God desires that he also does not decree. Okay, well, we're going to live in that tension for just a little bit. So then it's man's duty, we know from Scripture, it's man's duty to repent and believe. It is man's duty to repent and believe. And we can tell people that. You're sharing the gospel with somebody, you can tell them. It is your responsibility to hear the gospel, to repent and believe, and if you do not, you are going to hell. Period. And it's right to say that to somebody. You know the realities that the Scripture's painting. You know what Scripture's telling you about how someone comes to be saved. You know what the Scripture... You know the juxtaposition. You know those two things. But yet, we are right to say from the pulpit, repent and believe. Believe in the Gospel. It's man's duty to repent and believe. In other words... Regardless of whether or not man has the spiritual ability to repent and trust in Christ, which we've already said he does not, he doesn't possess that out of himself, nevertheless, it's still man's duty, his responsibility to do so. Therefore, the indiscriminate preaching of the gospel is necessary. Remember, the only reason man is in a state where, one, the gospel has to be preached to him, right? Or two... He cannot respond to it positively. The only reason he's in that position is because he's guilty in Adam. You understand that? So his inability to respond to the gospel does not free him up from responsibility for guilt. In fact, Paul's going to pose that question back to himself in Romans 9. He's going to say, but you will ask then. Some will say, Well, why does he still find fault? For who could resist his will? And Paul says, Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? And what is made 
say to its maker, why have you made me like this? The answer is, are you going to put God on the bench? Are you going to put him on trial? If so, who's going to sit in the judge's chair? You? No. So remember, we can't respond. We don't respond. We are hard-hearted and closed ears and stiff-necked. Why? Because we're guilty. Because we're right there with Adam. So it's our fault to begin with. All right? All right. So the general, or often referred to as the external call of the gospel message, the external call of the gospel message, can and will be successfully resisted by sinners. So we are saying that what we believe is that you, you put a broad, you throw that we're, we're supposed to cast a wide net with the gospel, right? Say it to anybody and everybody that will give us the time of day. Throw the gospel net really wide. And what we're saying is that that call to the gospel will be resisted, and, and, and dare I say, probably far more than it's, than it's not resisted, right? Probably. Um, I mean, Jesus says narrow is the way, so I mean, you know, I'm sure there are pastors and churches that have had, you know, times where it seemed like everybody was saying yes to it, right? I'm sure that's happened, and, and we know it has, but, but for the most part, that's not the ministry that he gives to most churches, right? That, that many people are going to say, no, you cast that net wide, and the external call to the gospel can and will be successfully resisted by sinners. All those whom God has not elected, will, and do resist the gospel call, and consequently, they further their condemnation before holy God. Understand, there's no excuse. You, you, okay, I could, I could see a guy trying to make an excuse about, well, I never heard the gospel, right? But that condemnation is only increased when you hear it and you reject it, right? right? So we, we know that. Uh, that, that plenty of Americans stand uh, with far greater guilt because they've heard the preaching. Jesus says as much about the Jews. You know, the, the people of Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented if this had been told to them. It wasn't, by the way. But if, they would have, if it would have been preached to them, that they would have repented. And you have heard it, and you still reject. Right? He says to the Jews. So, so it can and it will be uh, rejected uh, by, by some. Um, let's read a few, a few of these passages that sort of illustrate some of this. Let me, I think I've lost my place where I am here. Let's see, what am I, Proverbs 1? Well, did I get it? Maybe I didn't get it. Third, about halfway down. Yeah, I think I've included several verses twice, and that's why it didn't include them a second time. That's okay. Um, Acts 7.51. Let's go to that one. I can find that one. It's on the last page there. Or page 6. Uh, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Luke 7.30, but the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves and not having been baptized by Him. Mark 6, 5-6, and He could not do mighty work there uh, except that He laid hands on a few sick people and healed them, and He marveled because of their unbelief, and He went about uh, among the villages teaching. It, it is the Spirit who gives life, the flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are truth and life. Um, so, we see that there's a, a, a resistance to the gospel that can be had by many and has throughout history, in especially you know the Pharisees and the in the in Jesus is preaching. There's a resistance to that broad call. However, this next point here, the effectual, the effectual, e f f e c t u a l. I can't wait till we get a projector. Um, the effectual. And, or internal call. The effectual or internal call is God's sovereign, creative, irresistible voice. It creates what it commands. God speaks 
not just to the ear and the mind, but He speaks to the heart. His internal heart call opens the eyes of the blind heart and opens the ears of the deaf heart and causes Christ to appear as the supremely valuable person that He really is. So here's what we're saying. Broad call of the gospel can and will be resisted by many. They'll, be, they'll continue just like Pharaoh did in his hardness of heart that, that the Bible will tell you God hardened Pharaoh's heart and he resisted the call of Moses, right? However, there is a difference between that broad gospel call that goes out to everyone or as many people as will listen and the effectual call or the internal call of God to the heart through that same preached message. Right? So there is a natural obstinacy that we have in our heart, natural resistance given to us by Adam to the gospel. Period. It's there. It's a wall. At any moment God wants to, He overcomes that obstinacy with an irresistible, internal, effectual call in which that person believes. Okay? That's what we're saying. That's what I'm saying. That at any moment he wants, he overcomes that obstinacy and the person believes. Now, it's not enough for me to say it. Let's see if the scriptures actually bear that out. 1 Corinthians 1, 22-24. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. Hold on. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. By default, Jews and Greeks are in the same position, coming at it from different ways. Folly to the Greeks. That's laughable. What? Somebody who died? That's crazy. Christ crucified? You're, you're out of your mind. To the Jews, stumbling block. I can't get over this idea that the Messiah died. But to those who are called, in other words, to those for whom God has taken down that wall of hostility and opened the eyes, all of a sudden, that same gospel message becomes the power of God. Okay, but keep going. 1 Peter 1, 14 and 15. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. So you see what he does now? Peter is saying, who is the one that calls you? So you might go back to 1 Corinthians, you might say, to those who are called. You know, maybe just a general gospel message. No, no, that's not the kind of called Paul means. Peter gives you what kind of called they mean, and that is He who called you. As He who called you is holy. So how does one come to salvation? He calls you. That's what He's saying. Okay, keep going. 23-25. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding Word of God, for all flesh is like grass, and it is Glory, like the flower of the grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So how does he call you? So he calls you. How does he call you? Through that same gospel message that is broadly cast out there to all. All right? The gospel net is cast wide, and the fish that get caught up in it are the elect. That's what he's saying. The ones whom he removes the obstinacy overcomes the obstinacy and opens their eyes to salvation. All right. Those aren't all the verses, okay? But just, I've saved some of the better ones for, for the end here. Uh, you got to, you know, it's like an op- opening a present. Um, it's a box inside of a box inside of a box. Finally you get to it. Um, so in the, epistle of, in the epistles of Paul, calling is not an invitation that can be accepted or refused. In Romans 8.30, calling must create faith. Calling must create faith 
So we've talked about that effectual call in those last few passages where they're clearly showing that how does one come to be saved? Him who calls, right? That's clearly what happened. Um, well, you might say, well, it's just a, it's a petition. Please, please believe. But that's not what Paul means. That's not what Peter means. I don't think that's what any of them mean. Um, in Romans 8.30, it's a perfect example of that. Let's read it. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, here it is, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So the elect are the ones he calls. And you might say, well, he calls, but I can say, nah, no thanks, because I can, right? If somebody calls you, can't you ghost them? Can't you send them to voicemail? Everybody gets an option when there's a call, right? I got caller ID. I saw you coming, Lord. I ghosted you. No. Paul doesn't even let you get away with that. Because he says, those whom he calls, he justified. What does it mean to be justified? It means, it's a legal term. It means you stand right before him. Cleared of all charges. Cleared of all charges. Unbelief is a charge. You're cleared of all charges. When did that happen that I was cleared of all charges? Well, 2,000 years ago, there was a man on a cross, and he said, it is finished. 2,000 years ago, you were cleared of all charges before you were ever born. And then the Bible even goes, actually, it was before the foundation of the world that Christ was slain. So, you were cleared of all charges definitely before you were born, but before Abraham was born, really, if we're really getting technical about it. So he says, those whom he called, he also justified. So we're not talking about the choice that you made you when you said, I believe, or when you repented, or when you walked down front, or when you got baptized, or when you did all those kinds of things, and, and people would say, well, you got saved on you know, June 20th, whenever. We're not talking about any of that. We're talking about God's doing. He called you, and those whom he called, he also justified. All right. Um, so it, the calling creates faith. And then what does, what does uh, Romans 5.1 say? Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So just three chapters before that, Paul says you've been justified by faith. Well, there you go. I got it. Okay, so I'm justified because the preacher said, do you accept Christ? And I said, yes, I do. I believe. See, I'm justified by my faith. Wait a minute. Three chapters later, Paul says, no, 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 no. Those whom he called, he justified. So then what is my faith? A result of his justification. That's what it is. A result of his calling. It's... it's he just lays it out there for you. Um, thus, God does not call all people, but some. And those whom he calls are given the power to believe. Galatians 1, 15 to 16. But when he who had set me apart before I was born... Wait a minute. How does Paul understand his own salvation? He who had set me apart before I was born and who called me, there's that pesky word again, by His grace, was pleased to reveal His Son to me in order that I might preach Him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult anyone. So this next one. God's election is not based on seeing what human beings would do or what, in fact, they would actually perform. God's saving promise is not based on works, but on the one who calls. The one who calls. Let's look at Romans 9, 11, and 12. I'll wait till you write that down. We can read it. Though they were not yet born. Now, we've read this passage, but let's zoom in. Though they were not yet born and had done neither nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election 
might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told the older will serve the younger. So there's this idea sometimes that floats out there amongst people to kind of try to resolve these two, bring these two together in a way that the Bible doesn't bring together. And they say, okay, well, here's what happened. See, God looked down the corridor of the future and he saw who would choose yes and who would choose no. And then he backed up and then he worked all this this out. He elected. That's still based on my choice. He elected. As contrary to... I mean, Paul could have easily said that. It's contrary to everything he did say. It's exactly the opposite of what he says. In fact, he goes out of his way to say that is in fact not how he did it. Because he says, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order, so in other words, the choices had not been made. The choices were not there, and God doesn't even care about the choices, apparently. He doesn't worry about it. And the reason that he chose Jacob over Esau before they were even born is why. Paul says, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, and the purpose is what? Not because of works, but because of him who calls. So in other words, God did this before Jacob and Esau were ever born and told Rebekah about it. Why? So that you would know it's his purpose in election and not theirs. It's not a result of their choices. It's, it's me. Okay. So Jesus explains, so th- this to me is probably the most powerful passage for all of this in Scripture. And it's Jesus speaking in John 6. Jesus explains this effectual calling of God most succinctly in John 6, 35-64. Jesus tells the Jews that God has indeed performed the sign that the multitudes were seeking. So let's set the context really quickly. Jesus is, has just fed the 5,000 and he's out in the wilderness and there's a whole bunch of people following him and they really want more bread. And um, they've seen these signs, and they're coming after him for it. I mean, in a good way, they, they, want him, they want him, they want him to provide more bread, more signs, and things like that. And they ask for a, they ask for a sign. They've had bread, and they, they've seen that sign. Why don't you just give us another one, you know, because we want more bread. And they bring up Moses, and they, they, they tell him, you know, Moses, he performed a sign for us. He gave us manna from heaven. And Jesus tells them, that was not Moses that gave you that. God gave you manna from heaven, and he's done it again. Me. I'm it. I am the sign, you understand. I'm a person from heaven. My eternal dwelling is in heaven, and I'm standing before you. How much more of a sign do you want? I'm him. I am the bread of life. I am the manna from heaven. I am what God has provided you. This is your sign. You don't need another one. It's me. And he says, still you don't believe. Importantly, in verse 35, Jesus equates coming to him and believing in him. Let's look at that. Just verse 35 of John 6. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Those are two statements saying the exact same thing. He's drawing a parallel between coming to him and believing in him. Coming, believing, it's the same thing. He means the same thing by them, and he does that several times throughout this passage. But basically he says, whoever comes to me shall not hunger, whoever believes in me shall never thirst. All right. So, Jesus equates coming to him and believing in him. We need to understand that before we go to the next part. So aware that they are among him and they have no, they don't believe. They just want the bread. That's it. Just shut up and give us the food. All right. And he knows that. 
So aware of their unbelief, he underlines two very important truths for them in verses 44 and 37. For our purposes tonight, we're going to do those in reverse order. We're going to do 44 first, and then we're going to go back to 37. And in one he says, so let me, let me read them first, and then we'll, we'll do it. So 44 says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. And then 37, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Okay. So one, the first thing here, it is not possible. This is what Jesus is saying in 44. It is not possible to come slash believe, remember those are the same thing, it's not possible to come and, or believe in Christ unless the Father draws the sinner. And by the way, that word draws probably isn't strong enough written there. Draws means to compel by irresistible superiority or a word would be drags. When someone sues you, they draw you into court. They drag you into court. You're going, right? A superior thing is dragging you, um, so you have to go. So he says, it's not possible for someone to do that unless the Father drags them as one drags someone into court. Second, all whom the Father gives to Jesus come to him. So the reason the Jews around him don't believe what Jesus is saying is, this is the way Jesus explains it, is because the Father has not drawn you. That's the reason you don't believe. That's the reason you want these things and you you won't hear what I'm saying and you won't believe. Importantly, next point here, Jesus makes it clear in verse 44 that he is, in fact, talking about final salvation. Now you might say, okay, What Jesus is talking about there is just being his disciple. He's not talking about whether or not someone goes to heaven or, you know, things like that. It's salvation. He's just talking about, you know, being being his disciple or something that, you know, Judas was his disciple, right? I mean, come on. So, right? And Jesus chose chose the twelve, and one of them was Judas. And so that's what he means there. Well, that's not what he says. 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. What's he talking about there? I will raise him up on the last day? That is final salvation. That's what he's talking about. And so he's saying, no one can come unless the Father draws them and they are saved. And all that the Father draws come. That's what he says in 37. All that the Father draws comes. No one else can come unless the Father draws them. And they will come. Do you understand what he's saying? It eliminates every possible argument you could possibly ever have in contrast to this. No, no, no. Here's how it works. God overcomes the obstinacy. He draws. Everyone he draws comes. I don't lose any of them. They're all saved. Okay. Now, if that's not clear enough, which I think it is, but if it's not, he concludes the section in verses 63 to 65 by saying that new birth is given by the Spirit and that flesh, the flesh, is of no help at all. Listen to what he says in 63. Flesh, no help. Okay, here we go. Look at verse 63. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words I've spoken are spirit and life. What? It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. No, 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 no. Somebody preached to me. I heard the gospel. And I chose to walk down. Raised my hand while other heads were bowed and eyes closed. And said yes, and that's how it happened, right? That's what took place in space and time, sure. 
Was it necessary for me to say yes? Yeah, it was. Yeah, it's by faith. Absolutely. It was necessary for you to believe. How did you come to believe? That's what we're asking. How did that happen? And what Jesus is saying is, the flesh is of zero help in that. It is 100% God's doing. And, and I think there are a lot of ways in which that makes us uncomfortable. And, and I think perhaps we get to the point where we're like, well, what? Why do I, how do I even share the gospel now if that's true? What do I do with this? Somebody's standing in front of me, and, and they say, yeah, I, I believe, and, and now what do I do? I, I'm, I used to have them just pray a prayer, and then I could walk off, and I was great. I had a clean conscience. I shared the gospel. Somebody believed. They're once saved, always saved. Mind you, there's some illogic here, because they chose salvation, but can't they unchoose salvation when you walk away? If they're free? Surely they could, right? What Arminius believed, you could lose your salvation, right? So, but we walk away and we go, I, okay, he prayed and he, he said the prayer and, and whoo, he's good. One more in heaven. And then that person stands on the porch and goes, all right, I think it did something. That Christian showed up and I prayed a prayer and I was good. I'm good. So what do I do? Well, importantly, very importantly, every time somebody said to Jesus that they wanted to follow him, he said, then follow me. So what do I do? That person says, oh, okay, I want to follow Jesus. You say, all right, let me teach you how. Uh-oh. That makes us nervous. Now I've got to teach somebody how to follow Jesus? Yeah. In other words, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. What do I do? Have them pray a prayer. No. Teach them how to follow Jesus. That includes prayer? Sure. Absolutely. It includes a lot more than that. Teach them how to follow Jesus. Congratulations. You're their teacher. So teach. But I think it makes us nervous because then when we say, well, if all this salvation business is God's doing, how do I know I can trust Him? That, if we really dug down deep, is the heart of the question we're asking. What's well, in His hands? Previously, I thought it was in mine. I can trust me thought. But now I realize I'm guilty in Adam. I'm a sinner. I'm corrupt of heart. And I depend on God for salvation. I've realized now I can't trust me. But before I thought I could. And I was good with that. But now that I have to trust God, it's a bit like trusting a lion to guard your home and not eat you. Right? How can you trust that lion to not eat you? Well, because the Bible tells you that he's good. And you see him fulfilling his promises all the time. You can share the gospel and you can trust that he's good. How can I teach this guy who, who doesn't know anything? How, how, and I feel like I'm new. I don't know anything. You can trust the Lord is good and he will work through you. Go ahead, Millie. Importantly, he doesn't just say that. He says, lest they turn and attack you and trample you underfoot. So he's not just saying, don't th share the gospel with the unbelieving. He's saying, be careful about sharing the gospel to the hostile. The ones who have heard the gospel, who know exactly what it is you're sharing, and turn and attack you. Those are the ones you have to be careful about, is what he's saying. It's not just the unbelieving. Yeah, he's, he's pretty clear. Share the gospel far and wide. 
But it's not without caution. There are those that will hear and turn into taxes. Be careful. Yeah, Sean. How? Yeah. There's. What do you mean? There's one way. One way to what? Okay. Yeah, no one's saying... Yeah, but you're thinking about marriage and relationship and coming to the table from a Western perspective. That's not first century marriage. First century marriage is a guy comes and pays a, a dad for the right to marry his daughter. So the marriage that he's talking about is an arranged marriage. The marriage that he's talking about is not a... The two sides come together and... And we're sitting there in the cafe, and we were like, well, we looked across the cafe, and we saw his eyes, and they were so dreamy, and we said yes to his proposal. That's not marriage as anyone has known it before the Western world. The marriage that he's talking about is the bridegroom comes and buys the bride, and she says. So that's the marriage feast of the Lamb. It's, it's an arranged marriage. So we, we, we think of love as we're attracted and we, you know, we have the ooey-gooey feelings and, and things like that, and that's not love in any way, shape, or form. That's a Greek understanding of love. The Bible's understanding of love is a decision that one makes to love. And what the Bible is telling you is it was God's decision. He was the one that decided to love. If he had left it on the table... The Bible is telling you, you would have said no. You wouldn't have said yes. It couldn't have been a Western view of marriage. You wouldn't have said yes. It's a first century Middle Eastern form of marriage in which it's arranged. You are in the relationship. Now that you are in the relationship, you are sealed by the Holy Spirit in that covenant relationship of marriage. Now, you practice the affection of love. He had to give you those affections first. Yeah, I mean, I mean it, um, there, there's a whole host of inconsistencies, I think, when people deal with um, the choosing of Christ and things like that. And, and if you think about it, um, if, if the understanding of salvation is you have, here, here's the offer on the table, and you have a, a freedom, you've been brought by God or by Jesus or by some sort of prevenient grace, like we talked about a couple, day, a couple weeks ago, you've, by some prevenient grace, you've been brought back to zero, and now you've got a choice to make, a fork in the road. Like we kind of, a lot of us probably grew up thinking about salvation. If that's the way salvation happens, then you must throw out the term or the phrase, once saved, always saved. You have to throw that out. And the reason you have to throw that out is because if I can choose and I'm free to do that, then I can unchoose. You have to have that in there. I have Otherwise, you're saying, once you come to Christ, you're in. Meaning, now that you have freely spoken, you have lost your freedom. Now you're bound. Wait, 
You lose freedom when you come to Christ? That is exactly the opposite of what the Bible is actually saying. The Bible is saying, now that you've come to Christ, through the Spirit, He's drawn you, all of those things, now that you have the Spirit of God in you, now you actually have real freedom. Before you were bound to sin, now you actually have real freedom because you can actually please God. You realize? By the Spirit's work in you, you can actually please God or you can sin. Now you actually have freedom. The people that are not in Christ, they're bound in sin. There is no pleasing God. Right? So we have to throw that out if that's what we're saying about salvation. Other questions? Now, I want to say too, obviously this is, we're on week 7. Week 12, we're going to talk about missions. So I realize we've got we to gotta deal with that. And we will. Just so you know. Sean, I think you wanted a question. You have responsibility before and after salvation. Nothing about this changes your responsibility. Why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? So you're responsible before, during, after, from birth to grave. Correct. Please God. Not work towards sanctification, but please God. Um, your, he, he, he'll tell you in Romans 8, it's still Him who's working in you to will and to work for His good pleasure. He'll tell you in, that's in Philippians. He'll tell you in Romans 8, he not only calls, but he also, those whom he calls, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also sanctified. Well, you know, but then he ultimately glorifies you. So he, he's throughout the process. But the point is, your operation now, you as a member of the body of Christ, you as a born-again believer, now can please God and can also sin. The freedom is that I can now please God. By the Spirit's work, of course. It's all enabled and operated by the Spirit. But the point is, I can please God. Right? So, yes, that is, you have the ability now to please God. But, but Paul very importantly says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. And he identifies throughout many times, faith is a work of Him who calls. It's not... It's not a, something you just kind of muscle up and think, okay, I'm going to really believe, I'm going to believe harder. That's not how the Bible defines faith at all. Okay, there's going to be lots of questions, so let's just continue to wrestle with them. We're going to go week in and week out. And, and I'll, my promise to you is that um, week 13 is where I've got it slated right now, that we're, I'm going to answer a few like major questions that I know well, you may not have, but you should ask. I'm going to uh, put them out there, and then I'll deal with those, and then open the floor to whatever questions are there. So we'll deal with them. And let me also reiterate, uh, I'm, I'm okay if you walk out of this after 13 weeks and you go, I, I, I get it, but I, I don't agree with it. I'm okay with that, all right? I really am. I'm okay that you, you don't agree with me. Here's what I don't want. We, we've grow, we grow up a lot, and I think this has probably been here in this church, it's been in lots of churches, where you got Calvinists and Arminians, and they're like at war with each other, continually. And it's a tragedy in the church, okay? What I, what I want you to be able to do is say, okay, I disagree with them, but the argument's pretty compelling, I get it. Like, the people that are Calvinists in your church, are reading the Bible, they're taking it seriously, they're looking at these verses and they're going, what do I do with that? Right? Okay. I also want you to know, Calvinist, if you're in here, 
<laughs> that if you're, if, you're, if, if you're reading the Bible and, and you're seeing some of the Arminian arguments, you may say, I disagree with them, and I don't think what they're reading is, is, is right, but I see some of the verses they're pointing to in Scripture, and I understand that they're going, man, I, I, it's hard to deal with that. All right, I get it, okay? So, as Paul says in, Ephesians, in Romans 15, therefore, accept one another, all right? Okay, can we do that? All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for your word, and your word and your spirit never divide us. They never divide your people. And so any work of division, any um, response toward your word being read and taught and really thought about deeply, um, is any division that results from that is a work of our flesh. Whether mine in teaching and being too uh, inflammatory, or the hearers in hearing and responding um, with uncharitable interpretations of anything said. So we confess that we are tempted in every way to do that. Me to be inflammatory, hearers to be uh, uncharitable in our hearing. And so we pray that you would remove all of that. Uh, by your work, through your spirit, to remove all of that. We have seen time and again you overcome the obstinacy of our heart with your word, through your word, by your spirit. And so we pray that you would do that and continue to do that in and through this study, that nothing that would be said would be taken inflammatorily or stated inflammatorily, but instead that we would see this as a valuable treasure we have in front of us, bound in leather, 66 books that testify to who you are, that men have bled for and died for to preserve for us because they saw it as incredibly valuable to teach us, to guide us in truth, and to lead us to salvation, to help us to see who you are, to grow us in your word, and to be valuable members of your kingdom. May we take it that way, and may we see it as worth our time and attention to pay very close attention to all the words that are listed there and that are stated there. Take them in and really think about them and chew on them. And in the end, we pray that what would happen is that we would see you as a treasure. That we would be willing to sell everything we own to buy the field. So I pray it would create that in us, in Jesus' name. Amen.